turn with me to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to begin uh, reading from the Lord's Word in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Let's hear the word of the Lord. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the song this morning that we can come together as an assembly and lift our voices to you in praise for your wonderful deeds. The greatest miracle is that we're sitting here together as one body, born again to a living hope. And I pray that as we look at other kinds of miracles, signs, wonders today, that they would help point us to your kingdom and to the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Signs and wonders. The apostles performed many signs and wonders. Anybody who takes seriously the first verse in their Bible shouldn't be alarmed. If God created the heavens and the earth from nothing, the miraculous is quite easy to accept. Christians agree that God is able to perform great signs and wonders. But Christians haven't always agreed on the place of signs and wonders in the church's mission. Some elevate signs and wonders to a place of central importance. They see them as so necessary to the mission that without them, our evangelism will prove defective, our religion powerless... Others have rightly exposed this error, but past abuses, as well as present disappointments, make some very leery even to pray for the miraculous. And still others argue that signs and wonders were limited to a special period in God's plan of salvation, but that period is now over. Or is it, we must ask? I won't pretend to answer all questions surrounding these signs and wonders, but I would like to build a framework for 
understanding them. So what we're going to do is first understand this passage since we're preaching through Acts. And then we're going to look at its broader context here. And then lastly, I want to make eight observations toward understanding signs and wonders. Don't worry, I had ten. We'll only cover eight today. Let's first understand the passage before us. There's there's a difficulty at the end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. It says, They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The difficulty is determining who they and them are. They could be the apostles. The apostles were all together in Solomon's portico. The people held the apostles in high esteem. Luke would then be describing God's powerful presence manifesting itself among the apostles. They could also be the church. The church were all together. None of the rest dared join the church, but the people held the church in high esteem. Luke would then be describing God's powerful presence among the church as a whole. Whichever you choose, the point is that God's powerful presence made some people fairly reticent to even approach. After all, didn't God just kill Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy? Great fear, it says in verse 11, came upon all who heard of these things. Now we're seeing all these signs and wonders and people become somewhat hesitant to join this group. We see the same in Jesus' ministry. Many flocked to Jesus, but others were very unsettled by him. In Mark 5.17, after Jesus sent a legion of demons out of a man, they begged Jesus to depart from their region. There's something about God's powerful presence and these signs that make some fearful and, and reticent to approach. Not all respond this way, though. Notice verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. So some dared not join them, but God's kingdom still advanced. I was talking with Tommy Hart at the picnic last week, and he he pointed out from this passage how concerned God is for a regenerate church, a believer's church. Church. It says believers were added to the Lord while those who were faking it, like Ananias and Sapphira, were removed by the Lord. That's a good observation. And another reason why we should take church membership seriously and, church, and corrective discipline seriously. But even more, this should give us an impetus to, to pray for God's powerful presence to rest upon us. God's powerful presence not only purifies the church from false converts, but it grows the church with true converts. We should want God's presence to be so manifest among us that hypocrisy gets exposed and sinners get converted. Let's not go through the motions of church without the presence of God filling this church. The other big thing we see here, of course, is is all the signs and and wonders. 
Verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. It doesn't say his shadow actually healed anybody. All we're told is that the people wished for it, much like the woman in the Gospels just wished that Jesus's, the hem of Jesus' garment might heal her. At the same time, we can't rule out the real possibility here, especially since later on in Acts 19.12, God heals people through handkerchiefs and, and aprons that are carried from the Apostle Paul to other places. The point is that God's presence so rested upon Peter and the church that it, that it had this kind of draw. It truly parallels the ministry of Jesus, which we'll talk more about in a, in a minute. Verse 16 is then the first place in Acts where we, where we see God's presence in the church beginning to, to impact the, the surrounding regions of Jerusalem. The people, it says, also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So word is spreading, people are, are hearing. God's kingdom starts pressing itself into other regions, gathering the broken and the oppressed. Luke is teaching us here who the kingdom of God is for. The kingdom of God is for the broken and the oppressed. They were healed. In some, we we get a snapshot of God's powerful presence working through the church, again, to to expand his kingdom. Now, I want to zoom out just a little bit further to see the broader context here. Don't miss that these signs and wonders come in answer to prayer. Look at chapter 4, verse 29 to 30. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God has already answered the prayer for boldness in chapter 4, verse 31. Now he is answering their prayer for signs and wonders right here in chapter 5, verse 12. God's power working through the church comes in answer to prayer. We can't want the power of God's presence without making time to sit in His presence. We can't want the blessings of God without wanting God. In his book, uh, Revival and Revivalism, Ian Murray reflects on the, is reflecting on the, on the second great awakening... ...in one chapter and, and uh, God's, how God's powerful presence revived the churches of the early 19th century. But listen to his observation. One thing can be said with certainty about the 1790s... ...before any general indications of a new era were to be seen is that there was a growing concern among Christians to pray. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church for 1803 records, likewise, that the institution of prayer societies 
or seasons of special prayer to God generally preceded the remarkable displays of divine grace. God's powerful presence works through the church when the church prays. I cannot stress this enough. And we'll keep coming to it again and again throughout Acts. Prayer is the means that God ordained to accomplish His purposes. If you want to see God's powerful presence working through your life and through this church, then we must devote ourselves to prayer. Pray for God's power to rest upon us. Pray for Him to heal. Pray for Him to press the gospel into enemy territory and and rescue people from Satan's strongholds. And pray that He does it through you, through us. Oh, that God's powerful presence would rest upon churches in Fort Worth, that multitudes of men and women, like we see here, get added to the Lord. That's that's the goal, right? That multitudes would be added to the Lord. That they worship Him and serve Him and enjoy His salvation. Pray for this. It's also good for us to see that God's powerful presence in the church will not be liked by all. What happened in chapters 3 and 4? God heals a lame man through Peter. Peter preaches the gospel and then he gets jailed for it. The same will happen here. God powerfully heals many people as they preach the gospel. The next thing we're going to see in Acts is persecution. And it's going to happen again with Stephen. In chapter 6... Perform signs and wonders, preaches the gospel, and they stone him to death. This is a pattern that we'll see in Acts. In other words, God's powerful, pleasant, God's powerful presence in the church doesn't mean a more comfortable church. It doesn't mean a safer church. It will mean greater opposition to the church. The kingdom of Satan will never win out, of course. In fact, nearly every time the church experiences persecution and acts, Luke will follow it up with a little snapshot of how the church continues expanding and the gospel keeps advancing. Satan's kingdom cannot win, but it will do all it can to frighten us and to harm us and destroy us. So let's be sober-minded as we pray For God's power to rest upon us, let's also pray for God to strengthen us to endure opposition. Now, having looked at the passage and then its context, let's now zoom out even more. And let's let's work toward understanding these signs and wonders. How should we think about them? How do they function in the Bible's storyline? What meaning do they have today? So here's eight brief observations, and this is part of your application, okay? Praying for God's power to rest upon the church is a big part of your application. Right thinking about signs and wonders is another. So first observation here, signs and wonders recalls God's act of deliverance in the Exodus, 
Signs and wonders recall God's act of deliverance in the Exodus. At least in the way Luke seems to be using them here. If you look at a concordance and you searched where these words, especially these words together, appear most in the Old Testament, you'd find a unique concentration around the Exodus. Okay, Repeatedly, uh, the, the, uh, the Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy and Numbers and Joshua and, and later on a few of the prophets, they describe the Exodus as a time when God delivered his people with great signs and wonders. Uh, in fact, in the book of Acts, in chapter 7, verse 36, when Stephen is giving a, a, an account of Israel's history, he uses the same languages. Moses led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea. And there's a sense in Stephen's sermon that you didn't listen to him, nor are they listening to Jesus. That's what makes him so angry. The next place where you get such a concentration on signs and wonders is with the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. What's the connection here? The connection becomes clearer when we remember that what Luke said about Jesus in chapter 3, verse 22. He is the greater prophet like Moses. So in the same way that God led his people out of slavery through Moses with great signs and wonders, God is leading his people out of slavery through Jesus with great signs and wonders. But way better than Moses, Jesus leads us out of slavery to sin. Way better than Moses, Jesus is risen from the dead, leading us out of slavery to sin. God's act of deliverance in Christ is the greatest exodus. The greatest deliverance is Jesus dying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead. He now reigns and he is continuing to work in and through the church until all his people reach the true promised land, the new heavens and earth. So these signs and wonders within this, the way that Luke is using seem to signal the dawning of a new era of deliverance. They tell the world, hey, listen up. If you want true freedom, if you want freedom from sin, trust in Jesus as your deliverer. A second observation. Part of the new exodus in Christ was God healing his people. Part of this, this new and, and greater exodus in Christ was God healing his people. I'll take you just to one place in Isaiah 35. This is Isaiah 35. Uh, in, in the midst of Israel's helpless condition, God is giving them a future hope. Um, but he explains this hope in terms of a new exodus. Uh, there's a wilderness in verse 1. Verse 3 to 4 imply that the people have suffered great enemy oppression. They are weak and need rescue. Uh, God is going to make a highway for them in verse 8. This is Exodus language. He'll, he'll ransom them in verse 10. So all of these are, are various images of Isaiah 35 reaching back to the Exodus, talking about a new and greater Exodus. What will be part of this greater Exodus? 
is that, as we see this in verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Verses 8 to 10 go on to talk about how he's going to turn their desert into a garden paradise and the ransom to the Lord return with joy and gladness. So when, when God brings this, this greater exodus deliverance, the broken world will experience a divine reversal. Okay, the lame will leap, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the brokenness will be reversed. Then enters Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 7, verse 19, and, and John the Baptist says, has some of his disciples, he said, hey, go ask Jesus if he's the coming one, the Messiah. Or should he look for someone else, right? And what does Jesus do in, in Luke 7, verse 21? It says that in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed, sight, he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Why didn't Jesus just say, Yup, go tell him I'm the Messiah? Why did he heal Many people, and then tell John, the blind see, the lame walk. Because it's saying so much more. He is the God of Isaiah 35. He has come to lead his people out of their brokenness into that new creation glory. And his signs and wonders are witnessing to the truth of that salvation. In fact, they even serve as a concrete expression of his salvation. Which leads to a third observation. The signs and wonders authenticate Jesus and the apostles. The signs and wonders authenticate Jesus and the apostles. In Acts 2, verse 22, it says that God attested to Jesus with mighty works and wonders and signs. In Hebrews 2.4, it says that God delivered the message of salvation and also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. We get something very similar in 2 Corinthians 2.12 where Paul is talking about his own ministry among the church and the signs and wonders he was performing that verified his role as an apostle. These signs and wonders had an an undeniable apologetic function. They authenticated Jesus and authenticated Jesus' ministry through the apostles. And this is why the, the Jewish authorities get so perturbed. Because how can anybody deny the healings? Everybody in this city was witnessing it. It was so obvious to the people that that God was with Jesus and his apostles. But I want to clarify 
how the signs and wonders authenticated them. It's important. They didn't authenticate them in a parallel fashion. Imagine two train tracks that never meet. They weren't just random displays of power that then came alongside their message, but really had not, never had anything to do with it. Right? It's, it's one thing to announce that you know, Jesus heals the broken and he rescues the oppressed, and then you pull a rabbit out of your hat. It has nothing to do with your message. Rather, the signs gave concrete expression to their message. It's a whole other thing when you announce that Jesus heals the broken, rescues the oppressed, and then the lame start leaping into the temple. And unclean spirits are fleeing in the name of Jesus. And that's how the signs authenticated the apostles and what helped many to believe their message. We'll see it again in Acts chapter 8 where the, with Philip. The crowds paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. By healing people and casting out unclean spirits, God authenticated Jesus and the apostles by giving concrete expression to their message. And that concrete expression helped compel belief. Fourth observation, signs and wonders manifest Jesus' inbreaking kingdom. Signs and wonders manifest Jesus' inbreaking kingdom. The Gospels make it very clear that, Jesus, that God's kingdom arrives, at least in part, with Jesus' first coming. He is the king, he brings the kingdom with him. In one way, his miracles function was that they signaled the arrival of his kingdom. Okay, they signaled the divine reversal that we talked about earlier. Everything broken would be healed. Satan's kingdom would be overthrown. Well, Matthew 12, 28 is a good example here. Where Jesus says that if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you, meaning that it's already arrived in the fact that the king is right there casting out demons. He is proving his authority over Satan's kingdom. Then in Luke 9, verses 1 to 2, Jesus grants his 12 disciples authority to continue his ministry. And he does it again in Luke 10 with the 72, both the 12 and the 72 preach the kingdom and they heal people to prove the kingdom's presence has arrived in Jesus. And that's all a precursor to the book of Acts, where the signs and wonders serve the same purpose. We've already saw it in chapter 3, the lame man gets healed, and the whole point of his healing is for Peter to announce that God has glorified his servant Jesus. That he has made him king overall by resurrection. Healing the man was but one manifestation of the power of ...of his present reign, and the same for chapter 5. Now, that doesn't mean everybody gets healed now. Jesus' kingdom is already and not yet. It's kind of an overlap of the ages. Some get healed now. But it's just as true that God leaves some in their sickness and suffering... ...to demonstrate his 
sufficiency and glory in other ways. We can even observe that with Paul himself. I mean, Paul is healing all kinds of people in Acts. And yet, there are occasions where he has to leave sick friends behind in other cities. Still, God chooses to heal some. And we need to understand what those healings point to. God's coming kingdom in Christ. They're the little foretastes of the holistic liberation to come. Much like the church is a little foretaste of the great people of God that are to come. We get these little demonstrations of manifestations of the kingdom's presence in this age until the fullness of it comes. Fifth, signs and wonders illustrate the compassion of God in the gospel. The two signs that we find most often in Jesus' ministry and the church's ministry are healing the sick and liberating the oppressed from the demonic. There are other signs that, that signal other things. I'm focusing... Here, on these in particular, they are the ones that cover the majority of the, of the signs and wonders, is this, the healing the sick and liberating the oppressed from the demonic. On one occasion, in Luke chapter 12, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 7, verse 12, there's a man who had died, it says, and he was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and it says that when the Lord saw her, it says he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he goes on to raise the woman's son. This particular healing shows that Jesus' healing ministry was driven by compassion. Uh, The same applies. There's another example of this in Mark 9, verse 22 where Jesus helps a family by healing their demon-possessed boy. And the parents pose this question to Jesus. If if you can do anything, have compassion on us, they say, and help us. Which means, when Jesus goes on to then help them in this way, that it's a demonstration or an illustration of his compassion. So standing behind these healings is God's compassion for humanity. Ever since the garden, Satan has tempted and oppressed humanity, and and we've still chosen to follow him, Ephesians 2 says. Our own rebellion then thrust the world into a state of brokenness and death that we could never reverse on our own. And yet God, who had every right to leave us in our brokenness and to leave us in our oppression and to leave us perishing in our sins, He has compassion on us. The salvation He brings humanity is motivated by compassion, mercy toward the helpless. Of course, God's supreme act of compassion is displayed in the cross of Christ... His compassion for sinners moved him to give up his only son. He died in our place to solve our greatest problem, which was sin. 
And yet it's also through dealing with our sin that He brings us healing. Isaiah 53 verse 4 taught us a while back. Most importantly, He heals our relationship with God now. He will eventually heal all things in the new heaven and the earth. These signs and wonders, though, illustrate now what God is like in the gospel. He comes to save the broken. He comes to save the oppressed. He comes to save the weak. He comes to save the enslaved. It's no wonder that in Acts 14, verse 3, it says, The Lord Himself bore witness to the word of His grace by granting signs and wonders to be done by Paul and Barnabas' hands. Yes, Paul and Barnabas were used by God to preach this word of grace. And then God was pleased to illustrate that word of grace by further granting signs and wonders. It is in compassion that, le- that is leading him to rescue and redeem humanity through Christ. Sixth. Signs and wonders help, but they're not necessary or most important. Signs and wonders help, but they're not necessary or most important. Let me go back to number five for just a second, because I think you can see from that, if you're seeing through these, these, little, these signs and wonders are kind of a window through which you're seeing the compassion the compassionate heart of God, I think there's plenty to draw on that as Christians in the way we ought to go to the broken and the helpless and the oppressed in our own lives. We too ought to have God's compassion for them and reach out toward them. It's what our Father is like. Okay, let's go to six now. I'm persuaded by the New Testament that signs and wonders are are expected to continue until Jesus returns again. It wasn't only the apostles who were gifted to heal. So were Stephen and Philip and Ananias. It also seems clear from places like Galatians 3, 5, 1 Corinthians 12 and James 5, 16. You know, like James, 1 Corinthians 12, some have gifts of healing. James 5, talking about the elders praying over people for healing and From places like this, I think God still gives people to heal and even perform miracles on occasions, just like he did in the early church. And that is characteristic of this entire age, stretching from his resurrection to his second coming. If we view these signs within the framework that we've already covered, they can be helpful and even desirable, especially when pursued with right motives. But we must never say they're necessary. If we say they're necessary, we are in some sense jeopardizing the message of the cross that Paul calls the power of God to save. It's not the miracles or the signs that save, it is the gospel that saves. And sadly, many churches have put so much stress on the miraculous that they've gradually pushed the gospel of the cross to the periphery when Jesus meant for it to be the center. They've thrust aside what Paul calls of first importance, the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 
And in doing so, they've led others astray. You can, you can have a healthy church without healings. But you are no church at all without the gospel. Jesus' words in Luke 10.20 are also helpful here. He sends out the 72, and they come back from their mission rejoicing. Lord, you know, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Far more important than signs and wonders is knowing God and, more importantly, God knowing you. Having your name written in His book of life. You may never do a miracle in your life, but if you're in Christ, you have God. And we must rejoice in that as we leave today. If you're not in Christ, I would exhort you to repent Turn away from your sins and trust in Him and He will forgive you. You will be saved. Seventh, don't be deceived by mere signs and wonders. Don't be deceived by mere signs and wonders. The Bible is very clear that God enables some very evil people to perform, to perform signs and wonders. You can think about this even all the way back to the Exodus where there were a few signs that Moses did and yet the magicians in Pharaoh's camp could perform some of the same ones. Deuteronomy 13 talks about signs that false prophets would do. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, that in the last days, which we're in right now, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So not all signs and wonders are innocent. Some are meant to deceive and lead people into false worship. So how can we know the difference? Well, I want to give you three crucial tests. Doctrine, character, and purpose. Ask those who are performing the signs, ask, what is their doctrine like? What are they teaching? Does what they, align, does what they teach align with the scriptures? Uh, do they believe in God as Trinity? Do they... Preach the gospel of Christ, or do they preach a different Jesus, a false Jesus, divorced from the cross and any call to take up our own cross? 
I remember a time where Rachel and I had first moved in and we heard loud music and somebody shouting down the street and we went, I drove down to the park and somebody was, some church in the area was holding a revival of sorts and uh, there was this guy huffing and, and puffing and talking about how Jesus wanted to heal many and he had people raising their hands and wanting to come down for healing and uh, no gospel was being preached. Uh, then I go home and, and just look up the church's name online and see they believe in the, the oneness of God. And well, what does that mean? And Oh, well, it means that God the Father created the world and then he came in a different form in Jesus. Uh, and then later on through the church, he's now coming in a different form in the Holy Spirit. That's a different Jesus, folks. People are going down and maybe even experience temporary miracles and yet going and joining this group of people who's leading them to, to love a different Jesus. God does not exist as three different modes of existence, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is Trinity. One God in three persons, and He always exists this way. So no. What is there? What are they teaching? What, what Jesus? I don't care if they're using the name Jesus to heal people. What Jesus are they leading them to? You've got to know these things and ask those kinds of questions. What's their character like? Uh, Matthew 7, Jesus teaches that we will know a false teacher by their fruits. Okay? Uh, and he even warns us that, that some of these guys are going to prophesy in Jesus' name. They are going to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And they're going to do many mighty works in Jesus' name. And they will even say on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and cast out demons and do mighty works in your name? And it says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of, workers of lawlessness. They will be lawless people. That will be the fruit of their, of their life. And then finally, what is their purpose? What's their purpose or goal? Is the purpose of the miracle to bring God the glory. Revelation 13 says that the beast, the beast performs miracles too. But his miracles lead people into false worship. Do the signs produce true worship? Are the people treating God as a cosmic genie to get whatever they want in this life? Or is the goal to devote their lives to his purpose and his priorities? Do the prayer meetings produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, Peace, patience, self-control? Or do they reflect the disorder of another spirit? 
These kinds of questions, they're they're not meant to to make us skeptics of everything miraculous. God still heals. He still liberates. They're only meant to help us discern when we encounter the miraculous so that Jesus remains our treasure and so that others get added to him. They're not led astray to another. We don't want people to perish because of false prophets and false motives. We want them added to the Lord in truth, and that's the point. The point is multiplying worshipers who respond to God's powerful presence and truth. So let's pray that God's powerful presence rests on us, that we too may see multitudes added to the Lord. And lastly, signs and wonders point to a kingdom free from brokenness and oppression. Signs and wonders point to a kingdom free from brokenness and oppression. Again, I want to point out the two signs, at least in Luke's narrative, if you read Luke and Acts together, the two signs we find most are healing the sick and liberating the oppressed from the demonic. With the coming of Jesus, these serve as pointers of what his final kingdom on earth will be like. His kingdom will be one totally free from all brokenness. The broken world will be made right. All natural catastrophes will cease. Broken relationships will cease. Broken bodies. He's going to transform for those in Christ into glorious bodies. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21 says, And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Satan will also be vanquished forever. The beast that was performing the false sign will be vanquished forever. Through Jesus' cross and exaltation, God has already ousted Satan from heaven. Read John 12. Read Revelation 12. He has been ousted. The accuser of the brethren has been cast down. His head has been crushed in a sense. And all that's left is the tail flapping around until it lays dead on the last day. When Jesus' kingdom comes again, the kingdom of Satan will be finished off forever. No accuser, no tempter, no evil, no oppression. No demonic strongholds, no deceiver, no deception, no darkness, no fear. Pure freedom and peace and loveliness before God's presence always. When you're reading a story like this in Acts, and you're seeing again and again these testimonies to signs and wonders and the healings and casting out demons... Let them serve as reminders to you of the kingdom that is coming. Let them point you to what Jesus' final kingdom will be like. And let them move you to share the hope of his kingdom with others who are broken and oppressed. And my prayer is that the Lord may add more to himself through our ministry. Let's pray together.